But I love, I love the unknown saints because I just feel like there's so much more to holiness than, than these little images that we have from the saints who we've, we've stripped everything out of their lives. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and today I'm chatting with Meg Hunter-Kilmer. Meg has an encyclopedic knowledge when it comes to the saints, and not just the saints you've heard of. I think in America, we tend to be more familiar with a lot of the European saints, you know, saints from Italy, like St. Francis, St. Anthony, saints from Spain, like Teresa of Avila or St. Dominic, so many French saints, you know, St. Therese, St. John Vianney. But how many saints can you name from India or from South Korea or from Guatemala or Honduras? Meg puts a lot of effort into representation when it comes to saints. And it's not just some kind of like Catholic affirmative action program. Like these are saints as real and as holy as the saints we all know and love in in our own general Roman calendar. Um, I think sometimes it's easy to forget the universality of the Catholic faith. Um, You know, since it is the Roman Catholic Church, we tend to focus in on Rome, focus in on Europe. But as she mentions, Catholicism was in India in the 50s. Um, St. Francis Xavier brought Christianity to Japan 100 years before St. Isaac Jogues came to America. Um, It really is a global church. As much as Western culture, Western civilization is inherently Judeo-Christian, Christianity is not inherently Western. It is global. And I love the universality that Meg's work speaks to. It reminds me of that passage in the book of Revelation when it talks about heaven, how there's people from every tongue, every race, every nation. Um, A global church is a beautiful church, and that's not just some sort of like politically correct, nice thing to say. It really is true. So yeah, definitely check out Meg's books and also just give her a follow on Instagram. She tells a lot of these stories on there and it's completely free. It's a great way to learn. Um, Great way to get to know your future neighbors in heaven, right? Uh, That's what the saints are. Uh, And also just a friendly request to please give me a rating and a written review in Apple Podcasts. I can just see somebody coming across the podcast and they're like, okay, the crab and the cross, what is this all about? And then they look at the cover art and they're like, okay, crab, cross, Virgin Mary, SpongeBob. I have no idea what this podcast is. And so if you write a written review and you just say what you like about the podcast, what you've gained from it, that can really help to grow the audience. Thank you so much for your support. And now my conversation with Meg Hunter-Kilmer. Meg Hunter-Kilmer is a speaker, author, and self-proclaimed hobo for Christ. She received her bachelor's and master's degrees in theology from the University of Notre Dame and has spent the last 10 years traveling the world sharing the gospel. Her books are Pray For Us, 75 Saints Who Sinned, Suffered, and Struggled on Their Way to Holiness, and a children's book called Saints Around the World. Her next book is called A Year in the Word, a Catholic Bible Journal, and it will be released in 2022. Meg, thank you for joining me. I am so excited to be here. I know. I have not seen you in, I don't know, like five years or something. Which is silly, but I feel like COVID has just made everything so ridiculous. That that is true. 
Yeah, co- it's been <laughs> it's been too long for everybody, basically, except the people that I'm like, I'm gonna live at your house for a month. Yeah, like, right. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To me, COVID is like it's like the new B- BC. It's like before COVID, after COVID. That's like the mm-hmm. new time division. Um, which actually, now that I think about it, it, sounds a little bit blasphemous because you know before Christ. Oh well, that's all right. <laughs> um, okay, this is funny though because actually apparently we recorded a podcast like eight years ago or something and I totally forgot about it and then I had a friend who was like yeah I I found this podcast you do with Meg Hunter Kilmer I was like wait I don't remember doing that I don't remember what it was about I remember we recorded it in the office after a camp one day yeah apparently it was about discernment oh okay (laughs) which is like my like least favorite topic honestly in some ways (laughs) Okay. <laughs> but um but yeah so that's somewhere out there in the I guess it's still out there if somebody someone I know found it yeah um, just search for Mary Rose Depperschmidt on iTunes on iTunes <laughs> um okay so speaking of COVID though like how did that affect your travel ministry were you just were you also totally shut down so um it's it was actually kind of I mean, I don't want to say COVID was convenient for me because yeah. it obviously wasn't. Um, but I have been living out of my car for 10 years and sleeping in strangers' houses and traveling nonstop. And in uh, like February of 2020, I was like, you know what? I think I need to write some books. I think the Lord is asking me to just take some time just to focus on writing. And so I cleared my schedule. I found a place to stay starting in March of 2020 so that I didn't have anything going on for like three months. And then the whole world shut down. And I was like, oh, well, (laughs) actually, that works out for me. Right, right. So I just sat down and wrote two books. Wow. So did that mean, though, that you had like no source of income like whatsoever during that time? Yeah, but that kind of happens to me a lot. <laughs> I mean, I guess I was I was writing and like you know. Did you have a book contract? To write. I did. Yeah, so I had a um, I guess some money from advances, okay. but yeah, like I it, when I go abroad, I don't I can't charge any money, and so like regularly, I'll just have three months where I'm not making any money, and it's that's kind of fine. I don't charge anything anyway. Yeah. So it's all it's all just providence and. You know, I had a free place to stay during that time, so it wasn't. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't okay. any different. So you're clothed and housed, and that's about the majority. Of right. You exactly. Need I need for. like food and health insurance. You right. know, which health insurance will drive you into poverty. But yeah, <laughs> it's really true. I mean, like my insurance isn't that bad because it's just me. But I look at like the family plans, and I'm like, if somebody just had my salary and had even like one kid, there's no way. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. Yeah. Um, wow. So you've been doing this for 10 years. Um, are you tired? <laughs> Girl, yes. Thank you for asking. Yes, I really very much am. I mean, but I have been for like years. Right. Um, and it's, there's like different kinds of tired in different seasons. You know, sometimes it really is like a physical exhaustion and I've just gotten a lot better at being gentle with myself there. Like when I was first first living in people's houses, I had this feeling that like I have to live on a normal person's schedule. And so if they're going to be up at seven, I need to be up at seven. And that's just not the way my body works. Yeah. Um, and I have some health conditions that complicate that. But then also like I'm just a night person, right? Yeah. And it's we have this sense in uh, our American value system that it's like more virtuous to go to bed early and get up early yes. than to stay up late and get up late. 
And so it feels like there is this this value judgment if you're sleeping in. And so I would always feel really guilty if I was sleeping later than other people, you know, even though they would go to bed at 10 and I would stay up until two working on stuff. And then I'd like still feel like I had to get up at seven. And so it's been a couple of years since I was like, you know what? I don't have to be embarrassed when I need to be asleep. Like that's, that's okay. And it really all started because I was staying at these, this old, these old people's house and I didn't know them. And they were like 85 and I overslept until 1 p.m. And I was, <laughs> I was so embarrassed. And I got up and I was like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. And this little old lady who like grew up during the depression and probably like milked a cow at 4 a.m. her right. entire life looked at me and was like, honey, if you didn't even know it was daylight until one o'clock in the afternoon, you clearly needed the sleep. And it was the first time that I was like, oh my gosh, it's not lazy to be asleep. Wow. Like, you have a body and your body is allowed to have needs. And I don't know that I feel like there's a lot of spiritual growth in that too. And recognizing that like, you don't have to conform yourself to other people's ideas of holiness to other people's ideas of faith and virtue that you can say, like, I know who God made me to be. And I know how he's calling me to follow him. And it's okay that that doesn't fit in the box that everybody else expects it to fit in. Yeah, no, I relate to that so much because it was funny, actually, I was I was talking with a friend on my drive up here and I was like, can we start a novena that I can just like learn how to like fall asleep in, at night and get up in the morning because uh-huh. this has been a lifelong struggle. But like, you know, we were chatting before about um, my new job and I feel like my new job fits my body clock because, you know, when I was a teacher, it I was first of all, I was uh-huh. never on time and every day I would drive <laughs> onto campus and be like, please God, just make me invisible so that nobody sees me coming in late. But like now that I'm on a college campus, it's like, well, there's going to be a lot of evening events. And so if I like, let's say I work an eight hour day. Well, if I'm going to be there till nine or 10 o'clock at night, then technically I don't need to come in until 11 or 12, which means that I don't need to get up until, you know, whatever, nine o'clock or something, you know, and I'm still working a full day. I'm still you know, I'm not just like on the couch all day, like eating chips, but I'm, you know, I'm going to bed later and I'm getting up later. And that is really like natural for my circadian rhythm or it just feels natural to me. And yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm so with you. Like <laughs> I was the same way when I was working in college campus ministry, I was working in an office where everybody was there from eight to five. And yeah. I was like, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to come in at 11. And they were like, well, but we get here at eight. And I was like, but the kids don't. And my job is not to sit around and do paperwork. Like maybe that works for y'all. That's great. But my job is to be present to these kids. And uh, like my trying to conform myself to this arbitrary American standard of productivity doesn't make any sense given the work that I've actually been asked to do. So I'm going to come in at 11 and I'm probably going to work 14 in our days because I'm irresponsible. And like, we just don't even need to worry about it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, okay. So you know a lot about the saints. And are there any saints who are like, I don't know, not early risers? Because I feel like, you know, when you look at the lives of saints, they're like, you need to get up at 4 a.m. And I don't, I don't know. Are there any saints that we can relate to on this level? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think there are a lot of things that we have imbued value into. Um, and then we play those elements of the lives of the saints up, right? Like productivity is something that in Western European um, 
understanding is something that's like really, really important. So we love these saints who only got two to three hours of sleep a night. And I'm right. like, okay, but for like some people's bodies just work that way. And when we glorify that particular like distortion of the human condition, it can make people feel that there's something wrong with them because they have bodies with other needs. Um, and so if we have saints who needed a lot of sleep, um, other than the ones who were like, you know, bedridden and chronically ill. Sure. Um, if we have saints who stayed up late and got up late, it's not something that got put in the stories because people were uncomfortable with it. They were like, oh, this seems like it might be vice. Um, and probably a lot of saints felt that they had to overcome it. And some of that makes sense because given the time, like when I am up until two o'clock in the morning, it's because I've been like, responding to people on social media and like being present to their issues until like 11 o'clock. And then I'm like doing this research online, which I can do on the internet. And then I'm like reading books, you know, like when I'm up late and being productive for the kingdom, then there's also when I'm just on Twitter for sure, hours. But, sure. but like <laughs> barring that it is possible for me to be productive for the kingdom and serving the Lord at one o'clock in the morning. And it wasn't possible in the 17th century, you know, like you didn't have electricity and you didn't have books, you know, like right, a lot of people. Right. And so I think that, you know, hopefully we'll see some night owl saints um, yeah. coming up, but yeah. I haven't encountered any yet. Right. But no, that's actually a good point just about electricity. I mean, we kind of take for granted that for most of human history, you had like fire and candles and that's about it. And so you just weren't going to stay up late because you couldn't see anything. Right, exactly. And so people go to bed early because what else is there to do, you know? <laughs> Whereas exactly. for me, everything shuts down and I'm like, now there's nothing to distract me. I can really just focus on doing the work that I need to do without like anybody posting anything new on Instagram because true. they're all in bed. True, true. Yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. Um, so when you were when you were writing your books during the pandemic, like did you have kind of like a system like I write for this many hours a day I research for this many hours a day or were you kind of more like well let me wait until something an idea an idea like jumps out at me so these were really easy books to write because it's the saints um and so it's not like you don't really have to be inspired so much yeah. as you just have to like do the research until the story becomes clear in your mind you know if I were I um my first book that I wrote, which has not yet been published, and who knows what the Lord is going to do with that, uh, but it was a commentary on the Gospels, oh and God. that, like, a, a narrative reflection on the life of Christ, and that, like, I had to be sort of in the right headspace to get to work on it, whereas with writing The Saints, it's like, okay, well, I know I want to write about this person, so I'm just going to research and research and research and research and research, and as I'm researching, like, the story just starts to come out. Right. Um, it also helps that it was Lent. And so I was not watching TV. Um, working in Easter is harder for me because I'm like, we should be rejoicing and right. we should be exulting and we should be watching Shit's Creek for 14 straight <laughs> hours, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> and eating donuts. And then when you eat sugar, you don't want to do things. Exactly. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, I should write something. And I'm like, well, but now it's five o'clock in the morning. So it's really just time to go to bed. Maybe tomorrow. And then the next day is still Easter, right? right. So having balance can be a little bit trickier for me. So it was convenient that the pandemic sure. coincided with Lent. Did you did you write these books in the span of like two or three months, like that quickly? Yeah, each of them took about six weeks. Yeah. That's actually incredible. 
It's a little bit absurd. Um, I, I tend to like hyper focus. Yeah. And then I just I get really excited and I want to know everything and then I get it all out there. Um, the second book, the uh, adults book, Pray for Us, I had written about half of it already and published it in various different outlets. So I guess I wrote a book and a half in three okay. months. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Wow. Um, so what kind of got you so excited about the saints like is this something that was always a part of your faith or was there like a time when you just like fell in love with the saints yeah no I was really not into the saints for a very long time um and I think there's a lot of reasons part of it is that we tell the stories so badly they're just they're they're saccharine and they're sanitized and they're completely irrelevant to our lives and it's very like she was very holy and she never sinned and she became an end the end. And you're like, right. You. <laughs> right. Or we or we focus so much on the miraculous that it all seems unattainable and we whitewash out any struggle or even like just normal humanity, you know? Like we don't we don't emphasize their their little passions or that she liked watercolors or anything like that. And so all of these stories just seem like, well, I have to become so much less myself in order to become Christ. And that's just not the reality of the saints. It's just that we're telling the stories badly. And so I think for a lot of years, you know, I would hear these stories and all of the women that anybody ever talked about had no real personality. Yeah. They were all just sweet and meek and mild and gentle and quiet and that is not me and I I tried to fit into that mold for like six weeks I wanted to murder everybody because that's not how God made me to be right and then I discovered Teresa Babla and I was yeah. like well, one time one time there was a salty female saint so I guess there's hope for me right but it just it the saints felt to me like something that was not blasphemy and that was about as much as I could give it and you know anybody I knew who loved the saints it really did seem like it was to the exclusion of Jesus. You know, it was a lot of, well, when you can't go to Jesus, then St. Rita will hook you up. And I was like, you can always go to Jesus. That's literally the whole point of our entire religion. Like, what are we doing? Right. right? And then I read a good book about the saints. I read oh. Modern Saints by Anne Ball. Okay. And I was like, oh my gosh, these stories are interesting and they're relevant. And I realized that these stories told well were sort of like a backdoor entry into preaching the gospel because like, you know, I can't sit down with someone and be like, let me tell you about Jesus and have them not bristle at that. Right. But I can, I can sit down and be like, Oh, do you want to hear about this really amazing saint who walked 3,700 miles because everybody was super racist. And so he went over their heads to the Pope to let them become a, a priest. People are like, yes, I do want to hear that story. And I'm like, good. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you about Jesus too. Right. <laughs> um, and, and eventually I realized that, so many of the stories of the saints, when we tell them well, are highlighting an aspect of our lives that we think makes us ineligible for God's love and putting a halo on it hmm. and saying, like, here's what holiness looks like when your parents are divorced. Here's what holiness looks like when you're dealing with mental illness. Here's what holiness looks like when you are a really incredible pianist and you have everything the world has to offer you and you have to make a decision like what does it look like to follow Jesus in the midst of this and recognizing just the power for drawing people into the heart of Jesus when you can tell them a story that resonates with their own lives and say look God can canonize this element of your experience that you think makes you unlovable like he can use that to draw you deeper into his heart and to bring glory to his name. And that was when I was like, okay, well, this is what I was made to do. Like, I've always been a storyteller. I just never really had good stories to tell. 
and discovering that God had made me a storyteller so that I could tell these stories so that people could come to know his love in a more profound way. I was like, all right, let's go. Yeah. No, I remember when I was first like kind of going through, I, I guess you could say a reversion, not that I was ever fully away from the faith, but like really deepening it, you know, like senior year of high school. And I was also really struggling with like anxiety. Like I was, you know, it, it was kind of a weird juxtaposition of like, you know, great in this way, terrible in this way. But I was terrified that I was going to die young because I was trying to become holy. And like all the saints, it just seems like all the saints die young, you know? It's right. just like, you know, St. Therese like dies at 24. Like all these saints, you know, they don't live, which is not, not true because like plenty of saints grow old. I mean, like, you know, Mother Teresa is like, you know, was like ancient. Um, but I just like, my, my understanding of the saints was like, they basically like lived really short, painful lives and then they died mm-hmm. and went to heaven. And I was like, but this doesn't, I don't, I mean, obviously there's, you have a limit to the control over your life, but it just, I don't know. It made me really scared of holiness because I thought holiness meant just like, I'm going to get a terrible disease and die young. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think a lot of times what people need to hear is like, it's okay to be ordinary, yeah. right? Like you don't, you don't have to levitate and you don't have to travel to distant lands and you don't have to die gruesomely, you know, like whether through a terrible illness or through martyrdom. And so telling people the stories of saints who lived these ordinary lives, right? Or saints who, who had many of the good things of this world. Like I talk a lot about Venerable Teresita Quevedo to young people. And I'm like, look, she was voted best dress in her class. She was captain of the basketball team. She was the number two tennis player in her school. She loved going to bullfights. She drove a car too fast for her dad. He wouldn't drive with her. She pierced her friend's ears with a safety pin. Like, don't do that. Go to Claire's. Uh, and that's not. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't go to Claire's. Go to a tattoo oh. parlor. Okay. Go to a tattoo parlor. They use a okay. needle instead of a gun. And it's. Su- it. Anyways. There you go. Now we're learning. <laughs> Over there at St. Mary's College, we know all about the piercing, yeah, I'll tell you what. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. But that's not before she became a saint. She died at 19, right? That's what holiness looked like for her. And she entered a convent, but it wasn't It wasn't like, I have to reject all of these things right. of my previous life. It was. This was a flowering of who she already was. And to see that it's possible to run after Jesus and not have him take away every good thing that you love Right. You know, that just that invitation, like, look, I'm not telling you right now, enter a combat. I'm not telling you right now, give up everything you love. I'm telling you right now, let Jesus love you and see what he does with that. And maybe that means you're still best dressed in your class and capture the basketball team. And maybe that means next year you become a Carmelite and die gruesomely of meningitis. You know, like, I don't, I don't know, but like, <laughs> it's less likely now. We have better medicine. Sure. It's fine. You'll be fine. You'll but, be fine. But yeah, you mentioned um, St. Teresa of Avila and I, I found out recently that she was like, really into tobacco and I was like no. yeah like I, I think they call it snuff even though I okay. think that word has many different meanings but yeah she was like a crazy like tobacco user and I was like wait how how is she like in the interior castle and then like has this like tobacco thing because in my mind it's just like I don't know like you shouldn't be attached to tobacco but at the same time tobacco is obviously very addictive and it's really hard wait to was that earlier or was that like I after think it was when she was conversion. in the convent but I'll have to like fact like, check first this. part of the convent or second part okay okay okay, okay. there's that's like a, a whole that's a good point I I will have to check on that because yeah she kind of has her own like conversion within the convent life um, yeah but one of the popes too was like I don't know see from a po- like from really anybody but uh 
cloistered religious, you know? Right. Um, I'm like, I could totally see it. And I like using tobacco, the church has not declared to be a sin. And obviously like addiction complicates things, whatever. I just feel like a cloistered Carmelite would be like, this is not according yeah. to my, or my vow of poverty, you know, like sure. it's a different thing. It's a different yeah. thing from smoking cigarettes. If you're you know, yeah. living in the world. Well, apparently, too, my sister, she did um, some volunteer work at one of the Missionary of Charities house in uh, in D.C. And there's like a tradition, like I guess Mother Teresa loved chocolate. And so she, they always have chocolate in the house because Aww. it's kind of like an honor of their founder. Like, you know, Mother Teresa obviously lived a very austere life, but, you know, she had a little yeah. sweet tooth going on. I love it. Yeah, I love it. God gave her a sweet tooth. Embrace right. it. Embrace it. <laughs> um, so, OK, the saint you just mentioned, when and where did she live? So she was 1930 to 1950 in Spain. Okay, okay. So a lot of the... She's beautiful. You got to look her up. Teresita Quevedo. She's like movie star pretty. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, best dress, you know. Right. Um, Yeah, because a lot of the saints that you write about and talk about, they're not the ones that people have really heard of. And so how do you even come across them? I know. I'm such an obnoxious hipster when it comes to saints. (laughs) As soon as someone gets popular, I'm like over them. Like I knew Carlo Acutis when, right? Oh. Like Father Father Ray and I went and found him when he was still in the cemetery in Assisi. Like before he got moved Whoa. to the church, he was still a servant of God. We were like so hardcore and I'm standing there in front of this guy's grave and I'm like, I'm older than him and he's going to be a saint. Like, what have I been doing with my life? And my friend was like, well, not dying. Like that's sort of part of it. It's that's, a little bit complicated a, to be a saint if you're not step. dead. The last step. It's like, fair point, yeah. Um, but you know, I was like, so into him and I'm telling everybody about him and then I succeeded and everybody loved him and he got super popular and I was like oh I'm kind of over him now like I'm such a brat I'm just I know I drive myself crazy but I love I love the unknown saints because I just feel like there's so much more to holiness than than these little images that we have from the saints who we've we've stripped everything out of their lives and so I spend a lot of time just Googling and going down rabbit holes. And some of it is, I I put a lot of effort into representation in the work that I do. Ethnic representation, representation of different states in life, of different personality types, of different disabilities, of different chronic illnesses. And so I do a lot of work where I'm like, okay, well, who, what saints are there with limb differences or what saints are there with intellectual disabilities or what saints are there whose parents abandoned them you know like so that everybody can see themselves and so I'm just a really good googler yeah and so so I start googling and then there will be some that I find that I'm like oh I think I think I need to learn more about you and sometimes like I learn about a saint and I'm like yeah okay well apparently you're awesome but I can't quite figure out why you know and part of that is just that we're so bad at telling the stories that it sure. can be hard to find a story uh, and I I can't I can't love a saint until I figure out the story, until I figure out like sort of the, the meaning of their life, at least in as much as it relates to me and the people that I serve. Um, but yeah, I just, I sort of latch on like a dog to a bone and I, I dig deeper and deeper and I'm searching in all of these different languages and I'm like, now I have a library access again, which is okay. very exciting. So I can like use all of the academic libraries and I can request books via interlibrary loan and I can get all of the sources on, you know, they'll like scan things and just email them to me. And I'm like, yes. I am the fanciest person in the world. <laughs> Do you read in any other languages? 
Um, I do. I use Google Translate for okay. a lot, yeah. um, but I, re- I can read French, Spanish, and Italian. Um, it's okay. usually quicker just to use my Google Translate app, okay. um, even in the languages that I do read. But, you know, there are some documents where, like, that's just not really going to work out for whatever reason. And, um, you know, like, if the, if the font is weird and Google Translate can't handle it. And so those, those three I can get along pretty well. Okay, because you've like also written about saints from like India, and I'm thinking like, are there primary sources in English about these people? Sometimes, and sometimes I just really am crossing my fingers and hoping that Google Translate is yeah. everything that it claims to be. Yeah. Um, and and I've had like I I worry that I'm promulgating false information because of translation issues. Because there was one time that I was researching Saint Rafael Giseri Valencia, and he's Mexican. Um, but I grew up on the East Coast, and so when I learned Spanish in school, I learned Spanish from Spain, which is oh. silliness. And so I was reading this document about him, and it was talking about this one time when he was in jail, and he was complaining that he was hungry, and so they brought in a tray full of tortas, which in Spain is cakes. And so I'm picturing, like, a whole bunch of layer cakes, Yeah. and he ate four of them, and he was a very large man. So, like, <laughs> it's possible that he could have, but I was like – bro, that's a little much. And so I'm like getting ready to write in this book that he ate four layer cakes. And then I was like, torta is a sandwich. It's a sandwich. Oh, Oh my goodness. Yeah. So praise the Lord. I fixed that before I went to press. But still like, dang, he's getting some good food in prison. Like, (laughs) well, yeah. And then they were like, why are you so hungry? And he was like, because I'm a musician and I had to sell my instrument. And they were like, oh yeah, you're a musician. We know you're a priest. And they gave him an accordion. And we're like, if you're a musician, prove it. But he really was a musician. And so he played beautifully and they were like, oh my gosh, we are so sorry. And they let him go with the accordion and 50 pesos. <laughs> and you're just wow. like, who is this guy? Like, I love it. He gets arrested and he comes out with a full belly and accordion and a wallet full of money. Right, right. All things work for the good of those who love God, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. Um, are there any saints that right now are like your BFFs? Oh, I mean, always so many. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> Do you, do, do you have, like, a go-to, like, or is it always changing, like, based on who you're, like, researching? I mean, that's definitely part of it. I kind of go through, like, obsessive phases right. where I'm just, like, re- like St. Davis Ahayam was canonized in May, and I, like, basically started every talk I gave with him for, like, the next three months because I was like, this guy is amazing. He's he's so cool, Mary Rose. He was um, a an 18th century... Indian man who was born into a high caste family and he was like a martial artist and a soldier and super successful. Um, but everything in his life started to go wrong and he was, you know, there was famine and his cattle were dying and there were deaths in his family. And he, it just really read a lot like Job mm. and he's performing all of these sacrifices cause he's Hindu and he's like trying to find which God he can appease. And then there was a Christian man and like, you know, he's in, um, Tamil Nadu, which is right next to Kerala. And Kerala has had Catholics since the year 52, right? Like India has been Catholic since my ancestors were worshiping trees. This is like old news. But there was such a cultural division uh, between these groups of people. Like he wouldn't ever have been friends with Christians, but there was a European Christian who had been a prisoner of war. And he's hearing all that Davis Ahayam was suffering. And he was like, well, let me tell you about Jesus and let me tell you about suffering that has meaning and this God who came into our lives to suffer with us. And David's like, okay, okay. Then he's like, well, let me tell you the story of Job. And he heard the story of Job and it resonated with him so much that he was like, oh my gosh, like 
this is the way that God is drawing me to his heart. Like, this is the way that I can come to know him. And so, so many saints, it's like, well, they suffered terribly, but because they knew Jesus, it was okay. But this was the first saint that I encountered what was really like his suffering was what brought him to Jesus in the first place, right? He didn't have that foundation of the theology and knowing how many people I've encountered who enter into suffering without that relationship with Jesus and to have this intercessor who can pray for them that that suffering would really conform their hearts to Jesus. I was like, this guy is incredible. So he converts to Catholicism knowing that there are going to be consequences, right? It's it's illegal to convert to Catholicism, but like maybe not for him. Like the, he had a lot of privilege, a lot of connections. Okay, and so it's yeah. one of those things, you know, like there are some laws that just don't apply to certain races and classes and sure, social standings sure. um you can be above the so law kind of exactly <laughs> like he's definitely above the law to a degree so like converting was not a problem but he converted and he was like you know if i worship a god who became man in a middle of nowhere village in some backwoods colonial outpost born to an impoverished young woman who died like a criminal i can't subscribe to the caste system like it doesn't make any sense to say that people have less dignity because of the accident of their birth if this is the god that i worship and so he was like okay well i'm done and the way that i'm going to be done with the caste system is i'm going to entirely subvert it by everything that i do wow and so he starts eating with christians and he starts spending time with the dalits with the untouchables and all of these other soldiers are converting through his witness and they're also working against the caste system. And the government of Tamil Nadu was kind of like, look, people want to be Christians. It's fine. It's like, we're not, we don't love it, but it's not like that huge of a deal. But if you start chipping away at the underpinnings of the caste system that holds up our entire society, like now, now we have a problem. And so really it was, it was fighting against the systemic injustice that signed his death certificate. And he, was tortured and he was sent into exile and some of his tortures actually involved hot pepper um so i don't know I'm, oh. <laughs> I, I was, when you like eat food that's too hot you can ask saint davis i to pray for you they like would rub it into his body and they like put him in a sauna with like peppers in the water so he's like breathing in all of the smell like it was pretty wow. gruesome uh, and and still he just had this this profound peace and this rootedness in Jesus. And so he's in exile and he's like chained to a tree and these people are coming to visit him and asking him for wisdom. Like Christians, of course, but also Hindus are coming to honor him as a holy man. Which is kind of like such an Eastern thing, like to go visit a sage, like at a tree. Like that's exactly what the Buddha was doing. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's so beautiful because he really, like he was a Roman Rite Catholic. He wasn't Cyril Malabar, but he didn't, have any concept that in becoming a Christian, he had to become a Westerner, mm. you know, and and he certainly had the advantage that there are, at that point were 1700 years of history of Indian Christianity, but that wasn't the branch of Christianity that he entered, right? And so just this, this deep rootedness in his Indianness, um, and that his holiness was a South Asian holiness. It wasn't like a, an imitation of a European holiness. And yeah. even the artwork of him, like, his posture and the way that he's dressed like this is not a man who has become a Christian by becoming a Westerner. This is a man whose Christianity is deeply rooted in his Indian identity. Um, he's a very, very cool guy. Eventually he was martyred um, and he was just canonized in May, but there's so many levels of his life that I think are really important for our world right now, right? This idea that we have to take risks to fight against systemic injustice, the uh, idea that our suffering 
isn't just something that like God is present with us in, but something that God like specifically is drawing us to himself through uh, the willingness to take risks for love of the marginalized and oppressed. Like he's just, he's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think we forget that like a lot of saints were not well liked in their time and Mm -hmm. all, a lot of them even weren't well liked by the church, you know? Yes. I, which is sort of funny because like you know we're like oh the saints you know we name a church after you we have a painting of you we have you know whatever and it's like yeah like 200 years ago you guys were the ones who were you know persecuting this person right like literally excommunicated them and now you've given right. them a halo right but it's beautiful i think especially in the the season we're in as a church right now where like there's so much division and strife within yes. our church and there's so much um feeling of opposition between like people on every part of the spectrum and the hierarchy um, to look at these saints and to see what it looked like for them to be obedient while also being faithful to the call that God had given them, you know, yeah. and you see these people who are like, they're excommunicated by these garbage hierarchs, <laughs> right? Like these right. bishops who are just in it for themselves and it's like objectively wrong what the bishops have done, but they do have that authority. And these saints, they're they're gentle and they're meek. And there are certain things that they're like, I'm not, I'm not going to stop doing this because this is something that is that I'm objectively called to by the Lord. But it's never it's never over something that's like a personal preference, you know? Like Right. Or, or they don't make always... they don't make themselves into like, well, like, oh, I'm so oppressed and martyred and like, you know, like come everybody come like pay attention to me. Like they're just like very like humble about it. And I, I don't know. Right. Like, they don't use they don't use that to their advantage, to, like gain sympathy in a weird way. And there's always a reverence. Yeah. Even when it's obvious that the person above them is doing something wrong, you know, and like there are certainly moments when we when we do have to defy authority, right? Like if your bishop tells you to cover up abuse, like you don't, you don't do it, right? You never, you never cover up abuse. Like you go to the police, right? Um, But if your bishop tells you, I've I've been telling people this for years. If my bishop tells me to wear a clown wig to mass, (laughs) I'm going to wear a clown wig to mass. I'm going to write to Rome, but I'm going to do it in a clown wig because my bishop has authority over the liturgy, right? And so like recognizing our role as Christians and, and where we have the obligation to submit because that's like kind of part of the whole deal of the church and where we have the obligation to also call uh, those above us to holiness. Right. And, and it's never through snark and it's never through derision and it's never through scorn and it's never through calling people ugly names on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, And I just, I see so much of this where I'm like, look, you might be right about the this approach to the liturgy or about this approach to covid policies or about this approach to eucharistic piety or you know like all of these different things you might be right but you do not become a saint by trash talking your bishop yeah like you just don't oh yeah no i mean i was just reading i mean the famous first corinthians 13 you know love is patient love is kind i mean when he he says like if you have faith to move mountains but you don't have love you're nothing, mm-hmm. you know, if you speak in mm-hmm. tongues, but you don't have love, you're nothing. And so it's like, if you have all the correct theological opinions, but you don't have love, it, it means nothing, mm-hmm. it, you know, and, it, and it's, that's a hard thing to say and to hear because obviously the truth matters 
you know, it's not irrelevant, but like charity trumps everything. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about one saint that is a well-known saint that you wrote about and then like your comment sections blew up and it was fascinating to, to read through. Um, and that's Maria Goretti. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so t- talk a little bit about what you said about her, her life and her death and like why you think people got so upset about that. Yeah, um, I think that Maria Gretti is a beautiful saint. I think she was an incredible little girl. I think she loved Jesus like crazy. And I think that the way that we tell her story can be incredibly damaging because we talk about Maria as a martyr to purity um, as though she would have been made impure by being sexually assaulted. And that's just not the case. And it's not what the church teaches. Um, And people, people get real cranky when you talk about this because when she was canonized, they said that she was martyred for preserving her chastity. And right. here's the thing is it's debatable whether or not canonization is infallible. There's like a whole theological conversation there, um, but it is not at all debatable whether or not the reason for someone's canonization is infallible. Like nobody argues that a Pope's homily at somebody's canonization is preserved by the Holy Spirit from all right, error. Right? right? That's not a thing. Um, but it certainly has a lot of weight, right? And I, I wouldn't just willy-nilly throw out uh, these assessments that popes have made, but I think it's really important for us to recognize that our understanding of human psychology has grown, and for a lot, a lot, a lot of years, the way that human beings in general, and the church in particular, talked about a woman's response to sexual assault, it sounded like fighting back was virtue mm-hmm. and being incapable of fighting back was weakness. And that's just not true. It is not more virtuous for your response in the moment to be fighting as opposed to fleeing or freezing or even fawning, which is another response that we see happens naturally in some human beings, right? That when you are under threat, your body immediately is like, you just have to, you have to appease this person by just doing whatever they want, because that's what's going to save you. It is not more virtuous if a car is driving down the road for me to jump out of the way than it is for me to freeze in my tracks and get run over by a car, right? And so it's the same thing when we're talking about sexual assault. And I think The way that we talk about Maria Goretti, so many survivors of sexual assault feel that they're being blamed Mm. for their assaults and told that it's their fault they were assaulted because if they were holier, they would have fought back and been killed. And they're also being told that it's better to be dead than to survive a sexual assault. And that was not John Paul II's intention when he delivered that homily. And it was not the church's intention in canonizing Maria Goretti, but it's absolutely something that people are hearing and I cannot tell you the number of people who have reached out to me when I speak about Maria Goretti or when I write about Maria Goretti who are like thank you so much for saying that because every time I hear Maria Goretti I feel guilty Mm. for being raped and and that can't be the church's intention but people get really angry when I say she is not a saint because her automatic reaction in that moment was to fight back She's a saint because she was an incredibly holy little girl. She's a saint because she forgave afterwards, which is also sort of a narrative that can be complicated because it 
makes it sound like we're saying if you don't feel good feelings about your assailant, then you aren't holy, right? And forgiveness is not about feelings. Forgiveness is a choice. Um, but when we tell these stories badly, it really, it really damages people. And I think a lot of the people in the comments on that post just really weren't considering who they were hurting. Yeah. And some of it is people who themselves have been hurt who are like trying to figure out a way to survive. And and I understand that and I honor that people are on their own journey and trying to figure stuff out. But a lot of people were just saying things like, well, if you like if you really know who you are in Jesus, like you would do anything to keep from violate being violated in this way. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Right, like right. Why, why would you re-traumatize people in this way? And honestly, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take to salvage the narrative surrounding Maria Goretti. Um, at this point, I feel like removing her from the general calendar might be our best bet. Not removing her from the canon of saints at all. Um, but, you know, there are certain saints that are on everybody's calendar. And I don't know that Maria Goretti needs to be one of them right now while we have all of these priests who are telling her story in such a damaging way. And, you know, like the people I talk to who are like, yeah, I used to be Catholic until I heard this homily about Maria Goretti saying that it was my fault that I was assaulted and I just can't do it anymore. Like if, if God hates me for having been raped, then, then I'm done, you know? And like, it's not, it's not worth it. Like, and I know that Maria Goretti would say that it's not worth it too. And I think her story can be told well, but it just has to be really trauma informed and it has to be led by survivors. Yeah. Well, yeah. A couple of things come to mind as you're speaking, like one technically, I mean, the perspective that you're giving on her, it's not really new. Like if you go back to, I think it's Augustine's no. City of God, like he talks about the rape of Lucretia and how her chastity was not damaged in that. And, and I mean, Augustine is right. also someone who had like pretty puritanical views and stuff oh, yes. about sex. So like <laughs> he, if, if he's acknowledging like, no, in no way was she stained by this violation, um, you know, then it, that's not really a modern idea. And also in scripture, I mean, there's a lot of people who are raped in scripture and never are they seen mm-hmm. as blamed you know right um th- there there's i mean you just don't see any of that kind of like narrative surrounding what th- what happened to them um and even like i mean there's a is it this the character of bathsheba is interesting you know some people say like david sexually assaulted her others say like she was complicit and there's probably somewhere in the middle you know but like she i don't know when nathan <laughs> gives the example she's an unblemished lamb Fair enough, I fair feel enough. like the parable that follows makes it very clear that she had no complicity in any of it. Yeah. Like maybe you can read the, the actual event. You can try and, and add in some complexity there. But Nathan's take on it was like you came in here and slaughtered an unblemished lamb. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's so, what I was going to say. I mean, like maybe you can make the case that like maybe on some level she was like, oh, the king, you know. But even even if that is the case, like like exactly like you said, like the scripture does not in any way present any blame on her. Like everything is on David. He's the one who, although I will say, I feel like she does suffer when her, when her son, when her kid dies, which kind of feels like a punishment. Um, Yeah. The scripture very much frames it as a punishment to David and not to her. And so I, which is, which is tricky because you're like, but then she's also being punished, but you're like, well, no, there are just consequences when people do horrific things to you, you know? And like, it's hard because God could have stepped in and protected her in that moment. Um, and, and that's really the problem of evil, right? Like yeah. 
why why does God not step in and protect the innocent? Like, why didn't he protect Bathsheba from the assault? Why didn't he protect Uriah? Why didn't he save the baby? Like, we don't know. Yeah, We don't know. Like, we know that God is good and we know that he allowed these things and it's really hard to hold that intention. And in the beatific vision, we will understand it. And it's okay that we don't right now. And it's okay to say, this is awful and I don't get it. And I trust that God is still good. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Man. Um, this has been awesome. I <laughs> I love listening to you. You have such a passion and you have, like you said, you have the greatest stories. Like you're, you're a storyteller at heart. And so I just want to encourage everybody to pick up a copy of your books um, and also like follow you either on Instagram or Facebook. You post a lot of saint stories on there and you're always teaching me about saints I've never heard of or teaching me things I didn't know about saints I have heard of. Um, and so that's just a great place to, uh, yeah, to follow you if you aren't ready to make the commitment and buy <laughs> a book. <laughs> yes, there's lots of free content on my social media and on, I've got a podcast and every once in a while I remember I have a blog, but that's all, that's all pretty old What's stuff. That's like before called? I was into yeah. Hobo for Christ. Hobo for Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and what are your social handles? So the easiest thing to do is Google Hobo for Christ and you'll okay. find my website and then you can click through on all of the little buttons and follow me all over the place. Okay, nice. What's, uh, what's next for you? Uh, well, I'm in Michigan right now. I'm with my illustrator from Saints Around the World oh, um, cool. and my best baby friend. And I'm helping her out with the kids so that she can illustrate hopefully our next book. Yay. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I'm excited. Cool. Well, best of luck to you. And um, and yeah, people, I mean, you just kind of like people just email you and book you to come speak at their church or their youth group or whatever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, check check yeah. Meg out. Awesome. Alrighty. Take care. Thanks, friend. Just going to check a couple points on the bio and then I'll kind of okay. tell you what we're going to run through and then it'll be, it'll be awesome. All right. So you from Notre Dame, you got your bachelor's and your master's, right? Mm -hmm. And were they both in theology? Yep. Okay. Technically it's the university of Notre Dame, not Notre Dame. University. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That is such a Notre Dame thing. <laughs> I mean, just cause there are schools called Notre Dame university that's true. Okay, so and that's from, a different school. So, okay. So from the university of Notre Dame, um, I just watched, I don't know if you ever watched Netflix, but I just watched the documentary about Monte Teo. Oh, I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard it's really good. It's really good. I, there was so much I didn't know about <laughs> it. Like, cause I, I just kind of heard like, oh, this person had an imaginary girlfriend. And you're like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Poor yeah, guy. Yeah. I, you really, I mean, yeah, you really feel for him. It's like, and I also didn't realize he was like, cause I, I didn't go to Notre Dame and like, I don't really watch football. I didn't realize how big of a deal he was like. Oh yeah! Like just before oh, yeah. all this, I thought I thought he became famous because of the fake girlfriend. No, I mean <laughs> to almost win the Heisman as a defensive player is unheard of. Like he was, yeah, he was a superstar, and then he just got smashed into smithereens, and then right. he fell apart on the national stage, and everybody laughed at us for a decade. So right, right, you know, it's fine. It's whatever. <laughs>